Today from the Global Lane, overlooking religion's role in helping to change the world. I think both parties have struggled uh, to fully understand religion to the extent they probably should. And Americans have to care about that. An upcoming Fathom event and the powerful and therapeutic scene from The Chosen that changed this actor's perspective on his own physical challenges. It affected me on a very deep level and it had the potential to affect others. 13 years after the big quake, in Haiti and around the world, strengthening families to keep kids out of orphanages. The shocking fact is 80 to 90% of the children in orphanages or placed in residential care facilities, they have at least one living parent. And the quarterback, once called Mr. Irrelevant, becomes relevant. Fearless and unashamed, Brock Purdy shares his Christian faith with the world. For me, my identity is in Jesus, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll with that. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Earlier this month on Religious Freedom Day, President Biden said his administration is standing against religious persecution around the world. Critics say much more needs to be done. Tough action speaks louder than words. Our next guest believes American diplomats must work with religious communities if they are to respond successfully to the many challenges now facing the world. Sean Casey taught and worked at several seminaries and universities, including Harvard Divinity School, Georgetown University, and Berkeley. He served as special representative for religion and global affairs at the U.S. State Department. He's author of the book, Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom. Sean, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So in your book, you write, quote, the ability to understand the complex dynamics of religion now is virtually non-existent in the current administration, and that is a troubling prospect against the background of our increasingly unruly world. So explain more, to what extent do you see this administration making religious rights or not making it a priority of U.S. policy and diplomacy? Well, Gary, first of all, thanks for having me on here. It's an honor, and thank you for this time to talk about my book. Back in 2006, a former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, wrote a book called The Mighty and the Almighty. And she talked about the fact that as Secretary of State, she had an army of experts on thousands of different subjects. But when it came to religion, there was really nobody to call in the State Department who could answer her questions from a position of knowledge and expertise. Fast forward to 2013, and Secretary of State John Kerry shared Madeleine Albright's view that the State Department had missed opportunities diplomatically in the past because they didn't have a capacity to interpret religion. And so he hired me uh, away from the Wesley Theological Seminary here in Washington, D.C., to set up the Office of Religion and Global Affairs. And he told us, uh, I want you to scour the world and find opportunities for us to have a deeper understanding of the religious dynamics of these various countries and then train our diplomats on how we can be more sophisticated in engaging those groups. So for the next four years, I ran the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, and we worked with dozens of embassies and uh, bureaus here uh, in the Washington, uh, D.C. area to try to help our, our diplomats understand the various uh, demographics uh, religiously around the world and what difference that would make for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you fast forward to the Trump administration, our office was shut down, and so far through the first two years of the Biden administration, it has not been restarted. So it's really not a partisan issue. I think both parties, as they have led the State Department, have struggled uh, to fully understand religion to the extent they probably should. Well, Americans are facing many problems here at home, so why should they be concerned about religious rights, religious freedom in countries like Somalia or India, elsewhere? 
Well, it, it's beyond just religious rights. We, we do have and have had an Office of International Religious Freedom since 1998. It's their mission to monitor and then to advocate for religious freedom. That was not our mission. Let me recite a few issues for you, just to name a few beyond religious freedom, keeping in mind that that was not our mission. That was the other offices. We worked on refugees. Right now, there are estimates that soon there will be hundreds of millions of refugees around the world. The current record, which we're in the midst of, is about 80 million refugees. And many of those people, whether on the move to be a refugee, you have to have fled your country because of persecution. We also worked in countries to work against public corruption. We ran anti-corruption workshops in places like Nigeria, working with both Christian communities and Muslim communities. Um, and so the list goes on and on uh, beyond simply religious freedom, that there were many public issues that religious communities are involved in around the world. And Americans have to care about that. We, we care if there's a flood of refugees coming our way. Are there things we can do to help resettle those folks close to home or eventually back in their own countries? Are there ways that religious communities can continue to provide global health services to underserved populations? Can they help eradicate poverty in their, uh, in their own countries and regions? Can they mitigate the, and adapt to climate change and the ravages it's having on, on global agriculture? So there were dozens of issues that we worked on around the world that if we didn't make progress on, there were gonna be people knock, more people knocking at our door, uh, wanting to flee the, the terrible living conditions they, or political conditions they found themselves working under. And, and some that were very challenging, I'm sure for you, when you served under President Obama during his presidency, we saw ISIS slaughtering Christians and other people of minority faiths. We saw Muslim Brotherhood followers destroying churches, killing Christians in Egypt. So what challenges did those situations pose for you as religion and global affairs diplomat at the U.S. State Department? Well, one of the things we participated in was the Secretary Kerry's process of declaring that ISIS had been guilty of genocide against Christians, Muslims, and, and other groups. I was part of a, a small group of, of people who came together to advise him on whether or not uh, the United States should declare that ISIS had committed genocide. And we came up with the recommendation that he should do that. And indeed, that was what his own inclination was. So we were able to use international law. And eventually, we hope to be able to hold those folks accountable. At the same time, when the Obama administration built the global coalition to defeat ISIS, I was part of a group that met with uh, leaders in the Gulf area. We, we met in, in Kuwait to discuss the beginnings of the strategy that led ultimately to the demise and defeat of ISIS. Uh, so it, it was an issue that we, we spent a lot of time working on. Okay, the book is Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom. Sean Casey, thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Gary. It's been great to be with you. It's the moment the Chosen fans have waited for. In just a matter of days, on Groundhog Day here in the U.S., the final two episodes of season three will premiere in theaters nationwide. So many people wanted tickets, they crashed the ticketing website after the series creators made their announcement. Well, here to tell us more and hopefully reveal a little bit about what, what we might expect from the season finale is veteran actor Jordan Walker Ross. He portrays the disciple Little James in the Chosen series. Jordan, it's good to talk with you. You've been acting since age six in TV and film since you were 12. So you've been in shows like 1883, True Blood, Reno, 9-11, Just Jordan. So now this role of Little James and The Chosen. So how did you get involved in this production? 
Uh, you know, the time that I was cast in The Chosen, I had just moved back to Texas from L.A. Uh, I was working in an acting school. I, I hadn't really done much professional acting in, you know, the five years leading up to it. Uh, so it was kind of a slow time. It wasn't the most fulfilling time in my life creatively. Um, I felt like, you know, I was kind of stuck. I, I had just started a family and... Um, wanted to provide for them and acting wasn't doing it. So I was trying to find other sources of, of income. And then the, I got an audition for the chosen and uh, did the call back and got to meet Dallas Jenkins. And then I got a call about a week later and uh, that was, you know, this October or this summer will be five years ago, which is pretty surreal. Um, but it's been, you know, the biggest blessing of, of my career and uh, one of the biggest blessings of my life. And I'm just I'm so honored to be a part of it. Well, you, you know, you do such a remarkable job in this. You, you really do. It's amazing. And what a rich character to portray. So what makes this role so different for you, maybe even more challenging than the rest? This is, uh, you know, playing little James on The Chosen has been the most personal role that I've ever um, had the privilege of playing. Little James, there's not much known about him biblically, but uh, Dallas Jenkins, when I auditioned, noticed that I had a limp, and uh, that limp is a result of cerebral palsy and scoliosis, um, which is something that's that's limited my opportunities as an actor. So for every other role that I had ever played, I felt this this pressure to hide my limp, to cover it up, to dial it down as much as possible. Um, and that was because of what I was hearing from casting directors and agents and, and producers. And uh, Dallas Jenkins was the first person to really embrace it and make it part of my character, which has added so many layers to Little James uh, that weren't there before and so many um, interesting aspects of this character that we've been able to explore since then. And uh, that's all, you know, led up to Little James's big come to Jesus meeting and in, in, uh, in season three, where he asks the question that we've all asked at some point, which is, you know, why not me? Uh, why does this person, you know, get healed and not me? Why does this person get this promotion, but not me? You know, this this idea that we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. Well, that was quite a compelling scene, a moving scene. I mean, it brought many people to tears. And let's let's look at a clip of that. I could heal you right now. And you'd have a good story to tell, yes? Yes, that you do miracles. And that's a good story. But there are already dozens who can tell that story. And there will be hundreds more, even thousands. But think of the story that you have, especially in this journey to come, if I don't heal you. Now, people can see the full scene from Season 3, Episode 2 by downloading the Chosen or Angel Studio apps. Uh, it's also on YouTube. Jordan, when you did that scene, did you realize how powerful it really was? I'm sure it helps many people uh, who haven't received a healing. Uh, it helps them to understand a little more about how God works and why. Yeah, I mean, doing that scene was was a really cathartic experience because... Those are all questions I've asked myself. Um, those are all questions I've I've wrestled with over the years, and uh, getting to act it out and in this controlled, safe environment was really powerful and therapeutic. And um, I I knew it it affected me on a very deep level, and it had the potential to affect others. But the response that that we've gotten after that released has been 
overwhelming in all of the best ways. I've gotten probably thousands of messages and comments and emails from people who struggle with a wide range of, of um, you know, disabilities or insecurities. And um, it's just been the most amazing thing because as an actor, that's what we do this for. You know, at, at least for me personally, I've always wanted to be a part of something that could impact people in a positive way uh, long term. And I feel like uh, I've... I've been able to do that now. Okay, quickly, I know there's going to be another Chosen Fathom event. Uh, the final two episodes are coming up on February 2nd and uh, 3rd around the country, uh, 3 p.m., 7 p.m. in theaters. The series creator, Dallas Jenkins, promised these episodes will be huge. So, all right, what can you tell us about the end of season three? I know you don't want to spoil it for us, but can you give us a little <laughs> tease? Just a little sure. bit? Of course, of course. So uh, like you said, they're coming out February 2nd and 3rd. Go to fathomevents.com to get tickets. Uh, but yeah, these are easily our most cinematic, epic episodes that we've ever done. Uh, not just in terms of of the scale of these scenes. You know, we we shot the feeding of the 5,000 and had over 12,000 extras on set over the course of three days. Um, so that alone is a pretty unheard of feat for any project. Um, but in addition to that, there is so much more that happens in these last two episodes. Uh, there are all sorts of twists and surprises and exciting character developments. And uh, it's it, if there were ever two episodes of The Chosen that demanded to be seen on the big screen, it's these two. And I'm, I'm just so excited for people to experience them with an audience because uh, that's how they deserve to be experienced. Okay, we're looking forward to it. And for another season, season four, uh, Jordan Walker-Ross, Little James from The Chosen. Keep up the good work. You're doing great. Thanks for being with us. God bless you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Orphans helped or harmed. 13 years have now passed since a devastating earthquake struck Haiti. Although their parents or other family members survived, thousands of Haitian children were placed in orphanages. Our next guest says that harmed the children and their families. Frédéric Jean-Baptiste is a child protection manager in Haiti with Changing the Way We Care. Frederica, uh, thanks for being with us. Now, many Christian groups, other NGOs, were well-intentioned, but you say we need to realize that orphanages aren't the best response to natural disasters, other crises around the world. Why not? Thank you so much. So for children everywhere, bright futures begin with loving families. And sadly, emergencies or poverty can drive families apart. And parents are often forced to place their children in residential care facilities. That's another term for orphanages to meet their basic needs. And the shocking fact is 80 to 90% of the children in orphanages are placed in residential care facilities. They have at least one living parent. And the living parent here can be an extended family member as well, grandmother, aunt, cousin, um, and we've realized through with the initiative that I'm working for, Changing the Will We Care, um, an initiative with CRS, CR, CRS, Catholic Relief Services, and Maestro with donors globally, um, we realized that sometimes families, they need to be connected to the resources that are appropriate to make sure that children can continue thriving in the safe and nurturing families. When I was there within days of the earthquake, I saw many little kids just hanging out, uh, roaming around the streets. They had nowhere to go. And 13 years have passed since then. I'm assuming many of those kids uh, were placed in orphanages and they've aged out. 
So what's become of them? There were a lot of children who were separated, but immediately, I think, working with partners and especially with um, Institut de Bien-être Social, IBERS, which is the child protection arm of the Haitian government, um, they were they really prioritized doing family reunification. So it was working on the field to, to try to trace those families. So several of those children, they were successfully um, reintegrated into family with their family members. But others, in fact, yes, they did stay in orphanages um, and they have aged out, as you correctly said. And that's where the support comes in, in terms of, um, that is one of the work that Changing the Way We Care in Haiti is doing as well. But we could discuss a bit later about how the support system that is built around families, around the children and around youth to make sure that they can go to vocational training and everything else to make sure that they can um, have a positive impact in our world. Well, as you pointed out, worldwide, 80% of the children residing in orphanages still have parents. So why are they in the orphanages if they have parents and other family members? That, that is a great comment. Um, so what happens is the orphanages being placed, being, being existing, it becomes as a pool factor. And sometimes, um, so while residential care facilities and generous donors who support them care deeply about children, these facilities oftentimes cannot provide the attention and stimulation that have been proven critical to a child's um, development. However, orphanages remain or as a pool factor. And in societies, in our communities, where sometimes families feel un unequipped to provide, for example, three, uh, three time meals three times a day for their children, so they often turn to orphanages thinking that they can receive those basic services there. And oftentimes it's not the case. And that is where our work comes in in, um, in working with those orphanages to change the way they provide the care. And on another side, working with families as well to change mentality and knowing that there are other resources available to them to make sure that children stay within families. Okay, let's get into that a little bit. Your group contends that strengthening families is the best way to help orphaned and at-risk children. So how do we do that? What do we have to do? So, yes, it, there are several ways to do so. And, um, for example, the first, I will start with changing the way we care, particularly in how um, the work that we do. It's really, so the program itself, it involves family tracing, tuition support, micro-savings group for families, vocational training when needed, health, education, and other. But it comes with three different um, intervention points. So we have child protection committee, co committees in the, in the neighborhoods, and they can serve as resources for family members who feel that they need to, they feel that they cannot meet the daily needs for their children. And then the other aspect is the family strengthening package. It really promotes um, family-based care. So it, it is through um, supporting families with positive parenting curriculum, um, uh, making sure that they are they receive training in financial literacy, supporting them with tuition for the for reint school reintegration. The third point is the transitioning of the orphanages, transform how they're serving the families, making sure that the children can remain in families while still providing services. Thank you so much from Haiti, Port-au-Prince, Frederic Jean Baptiste of Changing the Way We Care. Thank you for setting us straight today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Just three weeks after NFL players knelt in prayer for DeMar Hamlin comes this. Word about the faith of San Francisco rookie quarterback Brock Purdy, a devout Christian.
More on that in a moment. Now, this young man is remarkable, folks. He's likely to be named Offensive Rookie of the Year, the first NFL rookie quarterback to score four touchdowns in a playoff game. That's amazing. Remember the kid in your childhood who always got chosen last when it came time to pick players for teams? Hope that wasn't you. Well, Purdy was selected as the last player in the NFL draft, number 262. He became known as Mr. Irrelevant. That's quite humbling. But this devout man of God kept pushing forward. More than halfway into the season, he replaced injured San Francisco quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo. He's led his team to seven wins and no losses since then. He's helped take them to the NFC Championship game against the Philadelphia Eagles. His college alma mater, Iowa State, tweeted out, You've always been relevant to us. But more importantly, Purdy knows he's relevant to God. Last December, after his first win as the 49ers starting quarterback, Purdy said, for me, I believe in the Lord and I trust in him. I just go out there and I just play. On his Twitter profile, he writes, he is a believer in Christ. And he quotes Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Here's what Purdy told Jason Romano on the Sports Spectrum podcast a year and a half ago before his role as San Francisco's exceptional starting quarterback. Living to, uh, you know, be set apart, you know, it's, it's easy to, yes, repent of your sins and um, be about Jesus, but, you know, to know, hey, I can't keep doing this sin. You know, I've, I've acknowledged it. I got to move on. But um, to be on fire for the Lord and to walk with him, I think right now, man, I'm all about, hey, I'm living set apart from the world. People can think this about me or whatever. That's fine. The, the bottom line is for me, my identity is in Jesus. Purdy went on to say he has a knowledge of the spirit. He wants to give it to as many people as he can. He said it's not that he's better than anyone else. He's just called to witness and share God's word. Right now, I think God's called Purdy as a witness for Christ on the football field. He's a true winner, not only for his talents on display before millions of NFL television viewers, but he's fearless in sharing his faith with the world. He's unashamed to tell all who will listen that his passion may be football, but his winning attitude comes from the confidence of knowing that he lives now and forever for Jesus Christ. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.